This was a doozy, and, and it wasn't a doozy because the information was difficult to understand. It was a doozy because it was too simple. Sometimes things are just too simple. Like the commandment is four words. You shall not murder. Pretty simple, right? I think it's self-explanatory. Don't kill people. So I struggled with that. Like, all right, what am I going to say? All right, but anyway, the title of the sermon is, Are You a Murderer at Heart? The title of the message is, Are You a Murderer at Heart? As you know, over the past few weeks, Pastor Chad and I have been exploring the Ten Commandments, and so far we've covered five of those, from worshiping the one true God and avoiding idols, to honoring his name, to keeping the Sabbath holy, and honoring our parents. We've been challenged by all of this to align our lives with God's perfect will as communicated through his moral law. Now, as we turn our attention to the sixth commandment, um, you shall not murder, we encounter a profound revelation of God, God's heart for human life and relationships. So in this, we see God's seriousness, his heart, his desire for human relationships and the importance of those being reconciled. This morning, we'll explore the sanctity of human life, the cost of unresolved anger, and what Jesus has to say about the importance of pursuing reconciliation in our relationships. If you have a Bible, I'm going to ask you to turn to a couple of different passages. So firstly, turn to Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, and keep your finger there. And then turn to Matthew chapter 5, and we'll be looking at verses 21 through 26. So Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, and then Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26. And I'm going to read that. I'm going to read Exodus and then go right into Matthew. Exodus 20, verse 13. You shall not murder. I could have memorized that one. You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. This is Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for its truth as well as its simplicity. Lord, I pray that you would use my preparation this morning, that you would speak through me, Lord God, for your glory. Father, that if anyone walks away with any one thing that they can apply to their lives, Lord God, this is a success. And so, Father, I thank you for the privilege, the honor of being the one to deliver your word today from your sacred desk. May you add a blessing to the reading of your word for the edification of our souls this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. So a father wanted to illustrate to his son the difference between anger and exasperation. He looked up the phone number of a pompous fellow commuter 
whom he knew only by name and reputation. And he dialed the number. When the call was answered, the man, answered by the man, the father asked, is Adolf there? There's no Adolf here. Why don't you get the right number before bothering people this time of night? Roared the man on the other end. Now that, said the father when he put down the phone, was simply annoyance. We'll wait a few minutes and then you'll hear something. After a decent interval, the father dialed the number again and asked, is Adolf there? This time, the other party literally screamed into the phone, what's the matter with you? Are you crazy? I told you, look up the number and stop bothering me. Whereupon the receiver at the other end was slammed down. Now that fellow was angry, said the father. In a few minutes, I will show you what I mean by exasperation compared to anger. After 15 minutes or so, the father dialed the same number for the third time. And when the man answered at the other end, the father said almost cheerily, Hello, this is Adolf. Have there been any messages for me in the past half hour? (laughs) Anyway, that's just a little humorous antidote for us this morning uh, to just show the, the humor of anger. Even though anger is not funny to God, there is some humor to it. Sometimes when we look back at our anger, honestly, we're like, I was real stupid. Especially when those actions were like, yeah, I went a little too far, right? But though we can find humor in a story like this, God truly is serious about the topic of anger in the heart of his people. So that's why this morning I ask you, do you have the heart of a murderer? The sixth commandment, or our first point, uh, points to the sanctity of human life. Exodus 20, 13, you shall not murder. Note God did not forbid killing per se. He commanded capital punishment and some wars. The Hebrew word used here specifies murder, not just killing. The Israelites were to execute murderers and others under the Mosaic law. However, he prohibited taking a human life without divine authorization. This also includes suicide. And I'm not going to go deeply into that, but that's also included under the sixth commandment. The sixth commandment emphasizes valuing and preserving human life. It forbids unjust killing and the harm of ourselves and others. This rule also aligns with natural law and was reinforced in the instructions given to Noah and his sons in Genesis chapter 9, verse 5, and Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, which read, Verse 5, and for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning from every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. In verse 6, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And that is really the rub right there, is that we are made in God's image. We have the imago Dei upon us. And so to injure, to hurt, to harm, to mar that image in another person is to violate God's law, even if that violation is words. Here are some exceptions to this. Self-defense, lawful war, or authorities punishing people to protect society. These are things that are not underneath the Ten Commandments, the Sixth Commandment. Beyond physical harm, 
The commandment also prohibits malice, hatred, and seeking personal revenge. Even feeling hatred towards someone is considered as bad as murder. Most importantly, this commandment forbids persecution and harming innocent and righteous people. It calls us to treat others with respect and kindness, valuing their lives as we value our own. I ran across an interesting story from D.L. Moody that I thought was kind of fitting for this. He says, when I was in London, I went to a waxwork there, to Sands, and I went into the Chamber of Horrors. There were wax figures of all kinds of murderers in that room. There was Booth, who killed Lincoln, and many of that class. But there was one figure I got interested in, who killed his wife because he loved another woman, and the law didn't find him out. He married this woman and had a family of seven children and 20 years passed by. Then his conscience began to trouble him. He had no rest. He would hear his murdered wife pleading continually for her life. His friends began to think that he was going out of his mind. He became haggard and his conscience haunted him till at last he went to the officers of the law and told them that he was guilty of murder. He wanted to die. Life was so much of an agony to him. His conscience turned against him. My friends, if you have done wrong, may your conscience be woke up and may you testify against yourself. It is a great deal better to judge your own acts and confess them than go through this world with the curse upon you. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise Jesus. We've seen throughout the entire Bible that God is serious about the taking of another human life, all the way back to Cain and Abel. God is serious about the sixth commandment. This man in the story had managed to escape the grasp of the law, but no one escapes the grasp of God. The Bible teaches us that nothing is hidden from God, that all things are visible to him. So even the things that we do in secret are ever before God. He sees you, he hears you, and he knows you. So there's no escaping. Since this is the case, we should be a lot more concerned about how we treat others. If you're harboring secret anger and animosity towards your brother or sister, you are placing your feet in the shoes of the murderer. I would assume that most of us in this room, despite having varying degrees of anger, probably have no intention of physically killing someone. At least I hope you don't. Yet on the flip side, I can also assume that most people in this room have harmed others through hurtful words, actions, or angry outbursts. But the troubling part about this truth is that the odds of you doing this again or being tempted towards anger and to sin in this way again are about 100%. Because people never stop being people, and you never stop being you, right? Since the problem of sinful anger is not going anywhere anytime soon, as good soldiers of Jesus Christ, I believe it would be important for us to arm ourselves with the weapons of our warfare, right, which are not carnal. So the weapons of our warfare are the scriptures. And so I want to give you a few scriptures here as application to store in your heart for the times where this sin is creeping up and inviting you to jump. The word says to store God's word in our hearts that we don't sin against him. And if you have no weapons to fight with when you are tempted to anger, what are you going to do? You're going to use natural means instead of the means that God has provided for us. So the first scripture is Proverbs 14, 29. 
Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. And I'm going to provide you a little bit of Roman commentary or Romantary as we go through these scriptures. So whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. Angry, slow, good. Angry, fast, bad. Stop and think. All right. Proverbs 19, 11. Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. Smart people think before they react. Right? And to overlook an offense is a good thing. All right. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Don't go to sleep mad because you leave a door open for the enemy to tempt you into sin. Pretty simple, right? All of it's simple. That's the problem. Simplicity usually makes our eyes gloss over and we're just like, "Eh, I get it, I get it. I'm doing that, but no. Proverbs 15.1, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Say nice things to people, because when you say mean things, they say mean things back. All right. And Proverbs 29.11, a fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. News alert. Everything that's going on in your mind is not necessarily for public consumption. Some things you should keep to yourself. And I have to learn that the hard way sometimes. But what I see as a common theme through all of these verses is a heart of humility. It takes grace and humility to return a soft answer when somebody speaks harsh words to us. So what do we need to do? We need to one, store these scriptures in our heart, and we also need to ask and pray and ask God to replace our angry hearts with humble hearts. Because you're going to need humility to be able to stand in the face of somebody railing at you and not react the way that your flesh wants you to react. You need the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to do that. Point number two, the high cost of unresolved anger. The high cost of unresolved anger. Let's look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 and 22. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. It was commonly taught, uh, but many of the people hadn't personally studied the law of Moses. Instead, they relied on the teachings of the scribes and the Pharisees. Regarding this matter, they had heard the scribes and Pharisees emphasize you shall not murder, but they had not studied it on their own. And how often do we do the same thing? We take the word of the minister, preacher, pastor, influencer, but we don't be as the Bereans and go study and search for ourselves because I can say something wrong up here. You realize that, right? It's very possible. And so you need to hold me accountable for the times when I say something that may not be correct, right? That's what this is about. This is our body and fellowship, not mine, right? 
Jesus' statement, it was said of those of old, serves as a reminder that something isn't automatically true simply because it's old. The age of a belief or teaching doesn't make it credible if it lacks truth. So just because you're stuck to some specific tradition does not make it true. What does the Bible say about that thing? Not what you feel about that thing. Feelings lie, but the Bible tells the truth. So just because something's old doesn't make it right. But I say to you, Jesus, when he says, but I say to you, Jesus shows his authority and does not rely on the words of previous scribes or teachers. He will teach them the true understanding of the law of Moses because he himself is God. This is not an explicit claim of Jesus being God, but you can see clearly that this is a way of Jesus exerting his authority as God because who else would have the power to change God's word or law or expound upon God's word other than God himself? Whoever is angry with his brother without a call shall be in danger of the judgment. The teaching of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not murder, was accurate, but they also allowed for anything short of actual murder. Jesus corrects their misunderstanding and clarifies that not only those who physically commit murder face judgment, but also those who harbor a murderous intent in their heart. So the Pharisees were quite clever, right? They're like, as long as you don't physically kill somebody, you're good. And they had a very bad habit of making things fit what they wanted them to fit without going into the depth of what is really being said there. Jesus exposes the essence of the scribes' heresy. To them, the law was really only a matter of external performance, never the heart. Jesus brings the law back to the matter of the heart. The supervision of the kingdom does not begin by arresting a criminal with blood-red hands. It arrests the man in whom the murder spirit is just born. And that's from a commentator. Does that make sense? The root is just as important as what the root leads to. The seeds of anger lead to murder when they're full grown. So the root is just as important as the fruit, as they would say. Both anger and murder are condemned under the law, but Jesus highlights that they are not identical. He teaches that God's morality encompasses not only the end result, but also the root cause of murder. The Greek word used for anger by Jesus emphasizes that he forbids anger that festers, refuses to forgive, and seeks revenge. So did you hear that? Jesus is talking about a different type of anger than you might be thinking about. He said this anger festers, refuses to forgive, and seeks revenge. That type of anger is all malice. That type of anger is all directed at harming someone. There are different forms of anger that are not necessarily sinful. There is righteous anger, correct? We've seen Jesus display righteous anger. It is okay to be angry when you see the image of God being marred in the world, whether that's on TV or in your face. It's okay to be angry about those things. The type of anger he's talking about is the selfish anger that comes from not getting my way, from not having my rights be uh, upheld, right? Raka, which is used in the verse, was a derogatory expression indicating contempt for a person's intelligence. And calling someone a fool 
showed contempt for their character. So you're insulting their intelligence and their character. Jesus says when you call somebody a name that's derogatory. Even though the actual murder was not committed, both actions violated the core principle of the law against killing. Commentators have translated Raka as nitwit, blockhead, numbskull, bonehead, brainless idiot. And some of you have probably said that today. So repent. (laughs) That's interesting. I'm I'm very grateful for that being uncovered, the depth of what's actually being said there. Because that's a lot more than just saying you fool, right? To call somebody a blockhead, a nitwit, a bonehead... (laughs) (laughs) it's going to lead to some fighting. Here's a little illustration called a time to keep silence. What did Solomon mean when he spoke of a time to keep silence in Ecclesiastes 3.7? One writer answers this question by positioning, by pointing out that there is a foolish silence, a sullen silence, a cowardly silence, and a despairing silence. None of these is to be recommended. However, there is a prudent, holy, gracious silence to which Scripture enjoins us. If we do not learn to practice this kind of restraint, we will speak injurious words that stir up anger and use harsh, uncontrolled language. Unguarded lips always lead to serious consequences. Someone has listed six mischievous misses that result. Misinformation, misquotation, misrepresentation, misinterpretation, misconstruction, and misunderstanding. They are the result of talking when we should be quiet. What power there is in the silence of self-control. John Wesley observed this in a disagreement between two women. One was speaking vehemently and gesturing wildly, while the other stood perfectly still, tranquil and unperturbed. Finally, the first woman stomped her feet and shouted, Speak so I can have some more to say to you! Wesley commented, that was a lesson to me. Silence is often the best answer. Amen, hallelujah, amen, lights. Yes, it is. Because how many times do I put my foot in my mouth with my wife? If you can't say amen, say ouch. Because you already know that you put your foot in the mouth all the time. I know I do. And I need to learn that. That sometimes it's okay to just be quiet, Roman. You don't have to be right. You don't have to get your point across. If you want peace, you should just be quiet. But anyway, that's my own stuff. The scriptures make it abundantly clear that what we say matters just as much as what we do. Honestly, if, I, if I'm to tell the truth, the worst injuries in my life were from things that people said to me. All of my physical pains, troubles, whatever, I get over those. Typically, we do get past that. But the things that are still with me today are things that people may have even said to me when I was in grade school. Isn't that interesting? Whoever says sticks and stones may break your bones, but words will never hurt you was a liar. They were a liar. I talk to men and women all the time who still are dealing with things that were said to them when they were children. Like me, I was always the fat boy in school, right? So... Of course, growing up, I developed tough skin and learned how to fight back. And now if you call me fat boy, I got a whole lot of good stuff for you. But, <laughs> but I'm not going to go there, right? It shouldn't have been in the first place. 
But this is how we live in a fallen world, and this is a result of living in a fallen world, is that we will be scarred and marred by the anger of others and the words that they hurl at us. So let's look at some more scriptures on this point that we can store in our heart. First is Proverbs twenty-one twenty-three: Whoever keeps his mouth and his tongue keeps himself out of trouble. Shut up and you'll get in less trouble. The Romantary. Proverbs ten nineteen: When words are many, transgression is not lacking. But whoever restrains his lips is prudent. When you talk too much, you will eventually step across a line that's going to cause a problem. Romantary. Remember that. I'm going to make a commentary called the Romantary one day. James 1.19. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Listen more, talk less. Right? In, in simplicity, listen more, talk less. Proverbs 13.3. Whoever guards his mouth preserves his life. He who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. Talking too much can get you in trouble and even ruin your life in various different ways. Proverbs 18, 21, death and life are in the power of the tongue and those who love it will eat its fruits. Since this is true, shouldn't we be speaking life, especially to our brothers and sisters? You can randomly walk up to me and speak life anytime you want to. I will have no problem with it. This is what we are called to do. This is who we are in Christ. We are supposed to encourage and spur each other on to greater and better works in Christ Jesus. And lastly, point number three, we're going to look at the pathway of peace. We're going to talk about pursuing reconciliation in our relationships. Matthew chapter 20, chapter 5, verse 23 says, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come offer your gift. In these verses, Jesus gives us two illustrations to emphasize the seriousness of anger. The first example takes place in the temple during worship involving a brother who holds something against you. The second illustration is in a legal setting with an adversary. Here's what's interesting about both of these. Both examples focus on your offense that triggered the other person's anger rather than focusing on your personal anger. I'm going to say that again. Both examples focus on your offense that triggered the other person's anger rather than focusing on your personal anger. We're quick to remember when others have wronged us, but we tend to forget when we offend others. If we genuinely care about overcoming anger and hate, we must also be concerned when we cause those feelings in the hearts of others. It's not just about your anger. It's about what are you doing to cause your brother or sister to stumble? Because sometimes it's not the other person's fault. Sometimes it's your fault. It's my fault. But we're quick to go outward. We love to point this way because it makes us feel better. I would much rather somebody else carry the weight of these sins than myself, right? 
the altar referred to in the verse referred to is one in the inner court of the temple. Jesus urges his disciples to address any conflicts with others before engaging in formal worship. Only through immediate efforts to reconcile can our worship be truly acceptable. Jesus prioritizes reconciliation with a brother over religious duties. So, in other words, I don't want your gift if your heart's not right with me. You can keep that. And that's usually what ends up happening, right? We sin, we do something wrong, and then we want to do a bunch of religious activity in order to either make ourselves feel better, make ourselves look better, or thinking that we're earning some kind of favor with God. But the truth is, none of those things are actually happening, right? This is the truth. Verse 25 says, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. Lest your accuser's hand, your accuser hands you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. In these two verses, Jesus urges us to quickly settle disputes with anyone who feels offended by us even before going to court. In ancient times, debtors were imprisoned until they paid their debts. Jesus wants us to take immediate action because holding on to malicious anger is harmful, and God's judgment is certain. We must do everything we can to put an end to the anger and conflict following the teachings of Ephesians 4, 26 and 27, as we read earlier, for example. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Paul warned us against holding on to our anger even overnight because it leads to sin and provides an opportunity for the devil to influence us. Jesus uses figures of speech when he says, truly I say to you, will by no means get out there till you have paid the last penny. Of course, money cannot satisfy the ultimate penalty. His words convey the idea that suffering of eternity is truly eternal. And I don't think that we think in light of eternity enough. If we really did think in light of eternity, I think we would move a lot differently. We're not living for this world. I'm not. I'm living for the world to come. Because that is the kingdom that I am a part of. When I became a Christian, I was transferred into God's glorious kingdom. Though I still have to live in this one. But I'm living for that kingdom. And so we have to think kingdom and heavenly minded. The strong figures of speech in this verse depicting the judge, officer, and prison serve as a powerful reminder of the everlasting consequences and urge us to consider the gravity of our actions in light of eternity. Of the, de- of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue, the prospect of bitter confrontation still to come, to savor to the last toothsome morsome both the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back. In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. When we devour our brothers and sisters with our words, we're feasting on ourselves. You're causing harm to your own soul when you do that. 
is what this is saying. We think that the things that we do only affect us. But the truth is, sin always affects everybody around us. That's why Jesus continually used the metaphor of the body, because we as brothers and sisters in Christ are interconnected as a body. We are an organism, not an organization. This is not a social club. This is the body of Christ of which he is the head, and we are the arms and feet doing his will in the world. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for that truth. I thought that this illustration was very powerful. A Korean Christian showed that he had grasped the meaning of the injury caused by anger when he got up in prayer in a prayer meeting and said, I heard the missionary say that every burst of anger pierced the heart of Jesus. So I hung a picture of the Lord on my wall, and every time I lost my temper, I put a thorn in that picture. The picture was soon covered with thorns. A great love welled up in me that he should suffer because of my temper. Now he gives me grace and temptation. I say, not I, but Christ within me. And his sweetness comes instead of my bad temper. I thought that was such a beautiful illustration. Could you imagine that? That's something that I should do myself, maybe, is to have a picture and put those thorns in there just to see how often it is that I cross that line into the sin of anger and offend someone else. I think it would change the way that I move if I could have a visual representation of that sometimes. So how do we apply this? More verses. Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him. Not everybody else. Tell him between you and him or you and her. Because what happens when things get in the mouths of other people? It comes back different than it went out. And then injury happens. Then offense happens. Then separation happens in our relationships. Colossians 3.13. Bearing with one another... And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Right at the root of all of this is the fact that you've been forgiven greatly as a Christian, correct? So I dare, I dare you, how dare me to not offer forgiveness when in these situations where I'm tempted towards anger. Yes, it may take some time. Forgiveness is not always instant, nor does God say that it has to be. Yet you should be in pursuit of it. You should be in pursuit of that. Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Again, forgive how Christ has forgiven you. Simple. Romans 12, 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, Live peaceably with all as it depends on you. Sometimes people are not just going to let you live peaceably with them. And if that's the case, then you get away from them. Because he says as much as it depends on you. So you do the most you can. You do everything you can to restore those relationships and then allow God to deal in the rest of that. In Proverbs 17.9, whoever covers an offense seeks love 
but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. Again, don't run around telling other people all of this stuff. If you've got a problem with somebody, bring it to them. Get it together. Get it reconciled. Don't play with it. Why would you? If we really want to see this church be everything that we've called it to be, we got to get this. If we ain't loving each other correctly inside of these walls, how in the world are we going to go out there and spread the love of Christ to these lost people? If they don't see the love of Christ emanating and exuding from the people in this church, what are we doing, right? I think we have great people here at Highland Crest. And I also believe that we can do better at this. You know, people, I brought this up in a meeting. I said, we're talking about redoing the church and building things. And, and, and I'm grateful for that. I think that's a great thing that we expand our church. But honestly, nobody I've ever invited to church stopped coming because they didn't like our building. They stopped coming because they were probably offended by somebody. Now, if you're offended by the truth, that's your problem. Unless that truth was given without love, right? However, many times people are not turned off by the theatrics or whatever that we have going on. It's the people. It's how you and I talk to them when they walk to the door. It's, do I look them in their eye? Do I invite them to things? Do I tell them that they're, that they're worth, worthy, that they're, they're precious in God's sight? Do I spend any time loving on the people around me? So in closing, again, we know that none of this is possible. We are not able to walk these truths out without the power of the Holy Spirit living in and through us, which brings us to the gospel. The gospel, once again, is the cure, is the answer to this thing that we struggle with. All of us are going to struggle with anger in some shape, form, or fashion. But Jesus has laid down his own life, and through his death, burial, and resurrection, he offers freely to us the gift of salvation. He paid the price that we should have paid. He paid the penalty for sin that we deserve. He has forgiven you greatly, Christian, believer. He has covered a multitude of sins in your life. He has thrown your sins as far as the east is from the west, but yet we'll walk out and hold somebody else hostage. Just like the scripture that talked about the man being forgiven the big debt, and he went out and grabbed another man who owed him a smaller debt, and choked him. That's the same thing that we do, and I pray to God that that's not us. I pray to God that we would move according to what God is speaking to us here, that we would live lives of forgiveness, of reconciliation, of going to our brothers and sisters, of telling them we're sorry, admitting our faults, because you need to have right relationship horizontally and vertically. God is concerned with both. Interesting, that makes a cross, right? When these relationships are broken, this relationship is hindered. We have to do all that we can to walk in love and truth. At this time, I'm going to ask our praise team to come forward. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your teaching on anger. Lord, I pray that you would let this word sink into my own heart. 
Father, because the truth is when I walk out these doors even today, the opportunity to sin and anger may present itself. Lord, I am asking you, I'm calling on you, I'm begging and pleading with you, Father, that you, through the power of your Holy Spirit, would give me the ability to stand and to return angry words with kind words, to return anger with love. Lord, that is a supernatural thing, and we are dependent upon you to be able to do it. In Jesus' name, amen.